Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The day that Nelson Mandela walked out the front gate of Victor Verster Prison in Cape Town, Black South Africa exploded with joy. It was February 11th, 1990, a beautiful sunny day made even more spectacular by the release of Mandela. After spending 27 years behind bars, he walked to freedom arm in arm with his wife, Winnie. They each raised a fist in triumph. It is one of the most memorable moments of the 90s, and it also marked the beginning of a new chapter in South Africa. Nelson Mandela had become the symbol of the anti-apartheid movement in the 1980s while serving a life sentence for sabotage. After his release, he became the face of a free South Africa and was elected the country's first democratically elected president four years later in 1994. His story and the sacrifices he made during the struggle for a free South Africa are well known, so we wanted to go a little deeper and expand our focus beyond the 1990s as we take a look at some aspects of this story that you might not know. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the history of the 90s. On this episode, we're diving into pirate radio and protest songs to better understand the pivotal role they played in helping to free Nelson Mandela and end apartheid. A defining moment in the struggle for freedom happened on March 21st, 1960. On that day, thousands of people gathered outside a police station in Sharpville, a small South African town 35 miles south of Johannesburg. They were angry about new laws introduced by the anti-apartheid government. Passbook laws required all black citizens to carry reference books, a type of identity card that contained personal information, like name, tax code, and employer. Anyone caught in a public place without the book could be arrested and detained for up to 30 days. Blacks called the book Dompas, which roughly translates to the Dumb Pass. On that particular day, the Pan-African Congress, or PAC, called for people across the country to mobilize against the invasive law which it said was designed by the apartheid government to restrict and control their movements. The PAC was a breakaway organization from the African National Congress and were considered hardliners. They were like South Africa's Malcolm X, while the ANC was like Martin Luther King. But the passbook protest was intended to be peaceful. It was the first of a five-day non-violent campaign to persuade the government to abolish the laws. Police officials had even been warned in advance about the protests. The PAC urged black South Africans to go out without their passes and surrender themselves for arrest at the nearest police station. If arrested, they were to offer no bail, no defense, and no fine. It was hoped that this would have a massive impact on the country. Prisons would become overcrowded, labor would dry up, and the economy would grind to a halt. 
In a statement, PAC leader Robert Subukwa said, If the other side so desires, we will provide them with an opportunity to demonstrate to the world how brutal they can be. It was like a passive-aggressive challenge to police. No one ever imagined how officers would meet that challenge. Spirits were high as demonstrators cheered and threw their hats in the air. They chanted freedom songs and shouted down with passes as they surrounded the Sharpville police station. As the day went on, more and more police began to appear, along with an increasing number of armored vehicles. At first, police tried to disperse the crowd by having military jets fly low over the crowd. It didn't work. The protesters stood their ground. Then suddenly, without warning, police used machine guns, rifles, and revolvers to spray bullets into the crowd. A woman who was there that day remembers they were just standing there singing when police suddenly stood in a row pointing their guns at them. Without a word, without an argument, as the protesters were still singing, police started firing. Eyewitnesses said the people at the front fell like bowling pins. Others said that men, women and children fled like rabbits as up to 300 officers randomly shot into the crowd. When it was over, bodies lay sprawled on the ground surrounding the police station. It looked like a battlefield. Sixty-nine people, including ten children, were killed, and 300 others were injured. Many were shot in the back as they tried to run to safety. Witnesses claimed that in some cases, police followed the wounded to the hospital, arrested them, and took them to prison. In a news report from 1960, a police commander at Sharpville was quoted as saying, It all started when hordes of natives surrounded the police station. My car was struck with a stone. If they do these things, they must learn their lesson the hard way. The Prime Minister of South Africa at the time, Hendrik Verdward, claimed the protesters had shot first. And yet no weapons were found on any of the protesters. I should note that he's been dubbed the architect of apartheid. So it's no surprise that the government reaction was swift. On March 24th, three days after the massacre, they banned all public gatherings. In response, ANC leaders, including Nelson Mandela, publicly burned their passbooks in protest. And on March 28th, the ANC announced a nationwide strike. All blacks were urged to stay home for a day of mourning and protest. The United Nations Security Council also took notice and issued its first resolution against the apartheid regime, condemning the killings and calling for the South African government to abandon its policy of apartheid. But two weeks later, on April 8th, the government doubled down, and they called a state of emergency across the country, leading to thousands of arrests, and both the PAC and the ANC were banned, forcing the groups to go underground. It cannot be understated what a huge turning point this was. 
the Sharpeville massacre signaled the start of armed resistance in South Africa. Up until then, the ANC had challenged apartheid through various forms of civil disobedience, like strikes, stayaways, and bus boycotts. After generations of non-violent activism, the ANC no longer felt it could defeat apartheid peacefully. As a result, the ANC abandoned its non-violent approach and formed a military wing called Mkantu Wasizwe, or MK. Nelson Mandela became its first commander-in-chief. The struggle against apartheid would now be an armed struggle. Following Sharpeville, Mandela traveled to Ethiopia for guerrilla training and then slipped back into South Africa to help coordinate more than 190 bombings and acts of sabotage throughout the country. The ANC targeted government buildings which were considered symbols of apartheid. But within a year and a half, Mandela and several other ANC leaders were captured at their underground headquarters near Johannesburg. With the arrest of Mandela, the anti-apartheid movement was dealt a massive blow. It appeared their hoped-for uprising wouldn't be coming anytime soon. The ANC needed another way to fight against the apartheid government. Bombs hadn't worked. A new weapon was needed. A weapon that could reach places that guns and guerrillas couldn't. That's when Radio Freedom was born. This is Radio Freedom, the voice of the African National Congress, South Africa's time-tested revolutionary movement, born of the people into the front line, to spearhead the people's struggle for the seizure of power from the oppressors, a product of the battles of the African continent for liberation. A pirate underground radio station that would become a crucial part of the ANC struggle for a free South Africa. The first transmission went out from the NK's secret hideout on a farm north of Johannesburg in June 1963. Over staticky airwaves, Walter Sisulu, a party leader and Mandela's mentor, addressed those listening. He said, I speak to you from somewhere in South Africa. Never has the country and our people needed leadership as they do now, in this hour of crisis. Our house is on fire. Just two weeks later, authorities raided the farm and shut down the station. At the same time, much of the ANC's leadership was arrested. What was left of the ANC went into exile. Radio Freedom would once again take to the airwaves in the late 1960s from their new headquarters in Lusaka, Zambia. It would eventually broadcast from Zambia and five other African countries and remained on the air until 1991 when its transmitters were turned off permanently following the release of Nelson Mandela and the dismantling of apartheid. Before Facebook and Twitter became revolutionary tools, radio was the backbone of many dissident movements. This was no different for the resistance movement by the ANC. Radio Freedom was a revolutionary tool used to inspire South Africans to actively join the fight for the liberation of South Africa. Each night, Radio Freedom broadcasted from a small studio, 
It was located in the back room of a tiny stucco house with a simple corrugated asbestos roof. At 7 p.m. sharp, seven nights a week, during the darkest days of apartheid, Radio Freedom began with its now infamous sign-on. Sakiba Kiba Peter Lakwati is a history professor at the University of Witzwatersand in Johannesburg. He says listeners cherished the show's signature opening. Uh, which featured, uh, you know, the AK-47 gunfire, the sound of an AK-47. Followed by, you know, a, a song, very short song, uh, called Hamburger uh, Konto. If you don't mind, I could just sing, you know, a stanza of it. They say, Hamba, Hamba, Gashem, Konto, Wem, Konto, Konto, Wesizwe, Tina, Tina, Bantum, Konzo, Pom, Konto, Sis, Misele, Ugua, Bulana, Ona, Lama, Puno. And then that would be followed by a chant of Amanda Gawetu, basically a call and response. Power, and then the response would be to the people. And then there would be a recitation, basically, it was some, someone, one of the broadcasters reciting what this radio station is about. This is Radio Freedom. This is Radio Freedom, the voice of the African National Congress, South Africa's time-tested revolutionary movement, born of the people into the front line. The voice of the ANC and uh, its military wing, Umkonto Wesizwe, basically calling upon the people to join the ANC and to bring on the fight against the apartheid government. And, you know, the listeners that have, have had a number of interviews and they said that is one of the most memorable moments about listening to Radio Freedom. And once they listened to this, and especially at the sound of an AK-47, they were basically inspired. They knew that they were not alone, basically engaging in this struggle against apartheid inside the country, but they had a connection to the outside world, that the ANC was alive and well. Blacks in South Africa, hundreds of miles away, gathered in secret, inside matchbook homes and thatched roof huts, to listen on shortwave radios, straining to hear through the static. The volume was always kept low, and the lights were usually turned off. You see, secrecy was critical, because it was illegal to listen to Radio Freedom. And if you were caught, you could be sent to jail for eight years. Nevertheless, you know, South Africans, particularly the politically conscious and active um, South Africans, would listen to these radios uh, illegally, um, despite the fact that it was very difficult to access these radios. And, uh, and of course, the South African state had a very wide network of informers, people that worked for the state, the people that um, were paid. There to provide information on what the Brand Liberation Movement was, was basically doing in terms of recruiting and mobilizing. Making things even more difficult was the fact that radio freedom could only be picked up on a shortwave radio. If you've never used a shortwave radio, well, you're missing out. Shortwave radio travels farther than FM. Shortwave broadcasts can be easily transmitted over a distance of several thousand miles. So you can listen to radio stations from around the world. 
Okay, I know you can do that now with the internet, but it's more fun on a shortwave radio. Just trust me on this one. But finding a shortwave radio in South Africa during apartheid was pretty difficult. The, the state in South Africa discouraged the distribution, uh, the selling of um, uh, radio sets that had uh, shortwave. So the manufacturers of uh, radio sets were encouraged to produce only you know, FM, frequency modulation radios. Nevertheless, uh, you know, some people continued to have access to these radios. So they were filtered into the country somehow. So people were forced to get creative. Some cars in South Africa at that time came with radios that could access shortwave broadcasts. So those would actually be taken from the cars, from the automobiles, and actually uh, connected uh, onto the, you know, the, uh, the batteries. Uh, you know, and then and then people could actually listen to, people could manage to access these radios that way. In addition to inspiring people to join the liberation movement, one of the main objectives of Radio Freedom was to counter the propaganda and misinformation that was being spread by the South African government on state-run radio. Following the Sharpeville massacre, the National Party government began to use the South African Broadcast Company as a propaganda machine, communicating their message in multiple African languages in an effort to reach as many people as possible. The ANC believed the government's agenda was to make sure that black South Africans were made to feel as inferior as possible. Freedom fighters were labeled terrorists and the movement was demonized. Radio Freedom offered an alternate view of news and current affairs and a different perspective of South African history. The ANC realized the power of the spoken word, especially in a country which in some areas at the time was plagued with very high illiteracy rates. It was an amazing grassroots movement as Radio Freedom had no official correspondents or reporters. It relied on people who sent in newspaper clippings and handwritten transcripts of interviews that were then read on the air. And there was a very interesting program called Listener's Corner. Uh, apparently, uh, South Africans in South Africa, people that were basically inside the country, could write uh, to this radio station in Lusaka, Zambia. Uh, to express their views, and uh, some of these letters did manage to reach them in Lus to, to reach the radio station in Lusaka, where people were basically expressing their views about how, you know, the struggle should basically unfold. It was incredible that letters snuck past government censors and reached Radio Freedom at all, but some did and those that did reach them were read on the air. Professor Laquita said one of the highlights of each year was the January 8th address by ANC President Oliver Tambo. It was kind of like a State of the Union address that listeners would often record on tape recorders. Which would then be distributed uh, into other underground cells. And then those would basically form the basis for discussion for that particular year. Because the January the 8th statement was, a ba was basically a program for the year. 
so the ANC would announce. For this particular year, these are the kind of activities that we are going to engage in to undermine the apartheid state. So you can see how important radio freedom was in getting out the message to South Africans. It was one of the only ways to communicate for the resistance movement, which was banned inside the country. Another big part of radio freedom was music. This is where people could listen to socially and politically conscious songs by popular South African artists that were illegal to listen to. But also freedom songs. You know, these uh, freedom songs that uh, a lot of people listen to this radio station, to Radio Freedom, in order to learn the freedom songs that were basically uh, um, composed in the uh, military camps uh, in, in, in the frontline states uh, where, where the ANC uh, guerrillas were, were accommodated. So these this freedom songs were basically broadcast on the station and the listeners in the country listened to this and learned the songs. And so these songs would basically play a role in the country because they would be learned and then they would be sung. When there were protests, people would sing the same songs that were being sung in the camps. Okay, so this is a perfect place to switch gears a bit because I also want to touch on the importance of protest songs and music in general inside and outside of South Africa during the anti-apartheid struggle. Following the Sharpeville Massacre in 1960, the Musicians' Union in the United Kingdom declared a boycott against the apartheid government. Bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were among those who refused to perform in South Africa. But it wasn't until the late 70s, early 80s that Western musicians really seemed to take notice and get involved in the struggle. And that happened because of the tragic death of a South African activist. In 1977, Stephen Biko, the founder of the Black Consciousness Movement, died from injuries he suffered while in police custody. He and another activist had been arrested at a roadblock and taken to jail. Mysteriously, he was found a month later naked and shackled outside a hospital 740 miles away in Pretoria. Despite a common belief that Biko had been beaten to death while in custody, police were cleared of any wrongdoing. As a result, Biko soon became an international martyr for South African black nationalism. His death inspired songs by the folk singer Tom Paxton, the prog rock star Peter Hamill, reggae artists Steel Pulse and Tapazuki, and most famously, Peter Gabriel. Gabriel's hit song, simply titled Biko, was released in 1980, and it raised international awareness of apartheid with lyrics that described the young man's death in September 77 in Police Room 619. We will include links to all of the songs we're referencing in this episode in our show notes for you to have a listen. But back to Biko by Peter Gabriel. It begins and ends with traditional South African funeral music and includes lyrics in the Kosa language, Yila Maja Yila Maja, which means come spirit in English.
and it's anchored by the steady beat of drums. The haunting anthem taught the MTV generation for the first time about the racial inequalities of South Africa and attracted the attention of other musicians like Bono from U2, Bruce Springsteen and Sting, who soon took up the anti-apartheid cause. In 1984, another hit song catapulted Nelson Mandela's name to world recognition. Until then, Mandela wasn't widely known outside activist circles. The song called Free Nelson Mandela was written by Jerry Dammers, formerly of the ska group The Specials. Dammers had no idea who Mandela was until he went to a London concert in 1983 by South African musician Hugh Masekela. At the end of the show, Dammers heard the crowd chanting, Free Mandela. He left the show with an idea for a song. The Specials had split up two years earlier, so Dammers formed a new band called The Special AKA. He invited one of his former bandmates to join him in studio along with members of The Beat and a young vocalist by the name of Stan Campbell. Elvis Costello was called in as producer. Free Nelson Mandela was vastly different from Biko. It was a joyful song with upbeat African rhythms and a very simple melody. Dammers had read somewhere that the shoes Mandela had in jail were too small for his feet, so he put that in the lyrics. 21 years in captivity, his shoes too small to fit his feet, his body abused, but his mind is still free. Are you so blind that you cannot see? The chorus performed by female session singers was simply Free Nelson Mandela. So easy and catchy that anyone could sing and remember its message. Remember, this was the 80s, so a 45 single was released of the song. On the front of the record sleeve was a picture of Mandela's face, and on the back of the sleeve was a bunch of anti-apartheid information. The song was a global hit, and it became an anti-apartheid anthem. Embraced by the United Nations, the ANC, and Black South Africans, who like to sing it at demonstrations and play it over loudspeakers, even though it was banned in the country. Inside South Africa, where it was illegal to show pictures of Mandela or even mention his name, crowds bravely sang Free Nelson Mandela at football matches as an act of defiance. Dammers would eventually help form the British wing of Artists Against Apartheid. They did a ton of concerts, including a massive free show in 1986 on Clapham Common in London. It featured Peter Gabriel, Boy George, Sting, Charday, Big Audio Dynamite, and Elvis Costello. Across the ocean in the United States, rocker Steve Van Zant, formerly of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, was putting together another record of artists against apartheid. The album Sun City was recorded in 1985 by artists united against apartheid. The lead single was a party jam that featured a couple dozen of the most famous musicians in the world at the time. They were all promising to boycott South Africa. The song's refrain, I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, was referenced to the whites-only Sun City Casino and Resort in South Africa, which booked major rock and pop acts in the 80s. The song was the brainchild of Van Zant, who had gone on a quest to learn more about the anti-apartheid movement, 
even traveling to South Africa and Zimbabwe to meet with revolutionaries after he heard Peter Gabriel's song Biko. Van Zandt sat down with the Zanian People's Organization, which is like a more radical, violent version of the Black Panthers. He told Fast Company in 2013 that he tried to convince the leaders that they'd never win the war with guns. Instead, they should use TV. Recalling the meeting, he said, They looked at me like I had two heads. I'm trying to tell people we can win this war on TV, and meanwhile, they don't even have electricity in Soweto. With the help of his journalist friend, Danny Schechter, Van Zandt recruited an array of musicians to take part in his all-star project. The mission was to encourage a cultural boycott of South Africa and damage the apartheid government's credibility on the world stage. Initially, he just wanted to record a single, but that quickly morphed into a whole album, which included various artists providing songs like Bono. After spending the day in the studio with Van Zandt, Bono went back to his hotel room and wrote Silver and Gold, which was featured on the album and later on U2's Rattle and Hum. The list of artists that took part in this is crazy. Too many to name them all. But here's a few. Bob Dylan, Hall & Oates, Lou Reed, Bruce Springsteen, Bono, Ringo Starr, Herbie Hancock, Pat Benatar, Joey Ramone, George Clinton, Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, Keith Richards, and Miles Davis. Van Zant had every artist sing the entire song when they came into the studio because he wasn't sure who would sing which parts. And he told Fast Company that he wanted to make sure he included this new thing called rap on the record. So he even called in Melly Mel, Africa Bombada, and Run DMC to take part. Though the music industry was still trying to ignore rappers then, he wanted to put them right next to Bob Dylan, Jackson Brown, and Bruce Springsteen and make a point that these guys were just as valid. The end result was a six-minute-long song that featured over two dozen artists and a 45-minute LP with seven tracks. The climax of all this attention by musicians came in 1988 to Mark Mandela's 70th birthday. Artists Against Apartheid, along with the anti-apartheid movement, organized an 11-hour mega-concert at Wembley Stadium, much like the Live Aid Benefit concert in 1985. Over 70,000 people were at the show, which was broadcast live to a billion people in 60 different countries. It was described by the BBC at the time as the biggest and most spectacular pop political event of all time. 83 artists performed, including Peter Gabriel, Jerry Dammers, and Steve Van Zandt. Also on stage during the marathon concert were Whitney Houston, Dire Straits, Phil Collins, The Eurythmics, Simple Minds, and Stevie Wonder. The concert peaked with the iconic trio of anti-apartheid songs, Biko, Free Nelson Mandela, and Sun City. Throughout the 80s, there continued to be a groundswell of support from artists who opposed apartheid. Stevie Wonder went on to release his own song, It's Wrong, Apartheid, in 1985, and was arrested during a protest outside the South African Embassy in Washington, D.C. And in 1988, the British reggae singer Eddie Grant recorded Give Me Hope, Joanna, Joanna being Johannesburg. 
On April 16, 1990, two months after Nelson Mandela was released from prison, another massive concert was held at Wembley Stadium to celebrate his freedom. Musical guests at the Nelson Mandela Freedom Concert included Lou Reed, Anita Baker, Chrissy Hind, Tracy Chapman, Bonnie Raitt, Natalie Cole, Neil Young, and Peter Gabriel. 72,000 people filled the stadium and millions more watched the event on TV. And this time, Mandela was in attendance for the show. The crowd went completely wild when he took the stage. It took over five minutes for them to quiet down so Mandela could speak. Dear friends here and elsewhere in the world, our first symbol and happy task is to say thank you Thank you very much to you all. Thank you that you chose to care. While at the concert, Mandela wanted to meet the man who had written the song about him. When he was introduced to Jerry Dammers, Mandela's response was simple. Ah, yes, very good. But legend has it Mandela took issue with some of the lyrics from Free Nelson Mandela. Remember when I mentioned that Dammers had written Mandela's shoes didn't fit well when he was in jail? The lyrics go, 20 years in captivity, shoes too small to fit his feet. Well, Mandela, in a typical gesture of humility and honesty, pointed out that contrary to popular belief, the shoes his captors had given him were in fact the right size. Apartheid didn't end the day that Mandela walked to freedom. That took endless negotiation by Mandela, the ANC, and the South African government, with the help of the international community. His release, though, set the wheels in motion that would eventually lead to a free and democratic election in South Africa. He led his country and ushered national reconciliation through the second half of the 90s, and he continued to be an activist and philanthropist well into the 2000s. That was until June 2004, when at the age of 85 and amid failing health, Mandela announced that he was retiring from retirement and he retreated from public life. Mandela died on December 5th, 2013, at the age of 95. His legacy, though, will live on forever. Thanks for joining me at this look back at the power of music and pirate radio and how they helped free Nelson Mandela and end a dark chapter in world history. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to my guest, Professor Laquati from the University of Witzvatersand in Johannesburg. Thanks to him for taking the time to share his knowledge about radio freedom. 
If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Special production help this week by Dylan Moore. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 